Marshall here. Welcome back to The Realignment. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. We've had a great week, as you could tell from my suit. If you're watching this on YouTube, I'm recording this right before we go into Lincoln Network's Reboot Conference. These Friday episodes are something we've added thanks to our Supercast subscribers. They are the opportunity for Sagar and I to either have a back and forth discussion episode or, like today's show, speak with an interesting author about a book that's up my alley, slash speaks to broader things you've been interested in. So today I'm speaking with Thomas Ricks. He's the author of Waging a Good War, Military History of the Civil Rights Movement, 1954 to 1968. This book is interesting, A, because it looks at the civil rights movement, something we've discussed in the past with guests like John Porter, through a different lens, aka a military campaign, which is Thomas bringing his experience as a Pentagon correspondent. But we're also looking at how that affects protests, civil rights issues today, and if there are any lessons to be learned from comparing these two different eras. Secondly, I should note that Tom Ricks' book, Fiasco, about the war in Iraq that came out in the mid-2000s was actually the book that got me into foreign policy. So we're going to spend a bit of time talking about the U.S. military, generalship, and those issues which are often seen through culture war lenses, not maybe just the typical military. So lots of great stuff here. Hope you all have had a good week. And of course, huge shout out to Lincoln Network for supporting. Tom Ricks, welcome to The Realignment. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. Yeah, I'm really glad to chat with you. I mentioned this before we started recording, but I've been reading your books for years, so this is a exciting opportunity to interview for you, interview you for the show. Let's just start here because I think the premise of the book is going to be a little surprising for folks who haven't studied your work deeply. Why do you think it's useful to look at the civil rights movement through the lens of military strategy? I think it's useful to take this military perspective because it illuminates the civil rights movement in a new way. Uh, It uh, shows just how difficult, how hard carrying out the movement was. Uh, It shows these people in a somewhat different light, just how much persistence was was needed, how much preparation and thought went into it. Uh, these people who ran the movement, who did things like training and preparation from Septima Clark to Diane Nash, to James Bevel, to Bob Moses, they should be better known. These are great Americans I would like to see on postage stamps. The, uh, I would like to see high school students know these names. And I found that using the military perspective really brought home the great struggle in a different way and helps us understand better, not just what the civil rights movement did, but how it did it. I consider the civil rights movement the greatest social revolution in American history. A, probably the single best instance I know of, of changing a society for the better in a relatively short time of just over a decade. It's a marvelous story. I was fascinated by it. And I found that my background as a war correspondent, surprisingly, enabled me to look at it in different new ways that might help us understand better, not just what they did, but how they did it. Could you then really go into your experience as a war correspondent? Of late, your books have trended more towards broader American history, but the prime real main fact of your career was like the U.S. military. Can you talk about that for a second? Sure. Uh, I covered the military for decades. Uh, I wrote two books about the war in Iraq. I also covered U.S. military operations in Somalia, Bosnia, Haiti, Kosovo, Korea, Afghanistan. Uh, fundamentally, though, for me, the core of all that work was somewhat tragic. Uh, Afghanistan, I thought, was a war that was mishandled. Iraq was a war that shouldn't have happened, a war in which we went into a country on false premises, 
not understanding what we were doing, why we were doing it, how we were doing it. Uh, so it was a real pleasure for me to finally turn to what I call the title, a good war. Good people doing good things to make this country a better place. You know, it's interesting when you are writing in the first chapter, I believe, that as you studied the civil rights movement, you came to see much in common with the actual campaign, 40s, 50s, 60s, with the Korean War, World War II, the Civil War. I guess from my perspective, just anecdotally, it seemed that I would think of the civil rights movement or any social revolution as being much more like an insurgency or much more like a revolt. Like, why should we think of these in terms of like traditional set piece battles or campaigns as opposed to like a revolution, quote unquote? Well, the civil rights movement, you're right, has aspects of both. But even an insurgency has to pay attention to a lot of military details. Insurgencies, by the way, tend to be very good at recruiting. As James Bevel was with innovative recruiting in the Birmingham campaign. You know, you think of recruiting, you think of an army sergeant standing on a street corner saying, hey kid, you know, you want three hots in the cot? Join the military. Uh, James Bevel, instead of going out and buttholing people, went to the two top DJs in Birmingham. Uh, Shelly the Playboy and Paul Paul, and said, would you say on your radio shows that I'm throwing a lunch for student leaders, cheerleaders, uh, football captains, uh, school, school class presidents, and I want them all to come down. And all these teenagers came down to his lunch and he talked to them about creative, confrontational nonviolence, not about passive resistance, but actually about going after the other person in a nonviolent way. As they said in their training sessions, the sheriff's not going after you, you're going after the sheriff. And he signs them up, he trains them in nonviolence, and he really turns around the Birmingham campaign through this intelligent and thoughtful and well-planned program of recruiting and training. Uh, so again and again, you see essentially military tasks uh, performed extremely well by the movement, sometimes in the form of an insurgency, sometimes in the form of more conventional stuff. The movement did a very good job of training, first at the Highlander School in Tennessee, later at the Dorchester School in Georgia, where they said local leaders, the people with maybe no degree, but PhD minds, need help in organizing and resisting. So they ran this week-long school where they would teach people everything from how to run a meeting to how to make a long-distance phone call. Some of these activists had never done that. To how to talk to a hostile white sheriff about your First Amendment right to peaceably assemble and protest to the government. They gave them this great tool set. They introduced them to a lot of their peers across the South. And brilliantly, they focused their recruiting on the counties, I think there were 668 counties, I think in, in the South that had a black majority population, but almost no black voters. So they went after this very tough target, gave local people the tools to address them. And then when those local people got into trouble, what they called good trouble, they came to the rescue with organi more organization, more money, more help. And they helped a lot of small towns and counties change radically. Now, it's easy to forget how radical the change was. I was talking to somebody about that this morning. Mississippi was the hardest state in the South. There's a song, old song by Nina Simone. Um, like, uh, Alabama's got me so upset. Tennessee's making me lose my rest. But Mississippi, goddamn. Mississippi, goddamn. Um, the SCLC, King's Organization, um, avoided Mississippi, it was seen as too tough. And so SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, somewhat more radical, saw that as an opportunity. If other people won't go into Mississippi, we will. And they went into Mississippi in the summer of 64 called doing what they called Freedom Summer to, to really bring up uh, local black people across the state help them register to vote, and also teach them civics in these freedom schools about their rights. 
I love that after, uh, it, it was actually uh, not allowed in some counties in Mississippi, that black, black schools were not allowed to teach civics, like the right to vote, and they were not allowed to teach foreign languages. Why, I don't know. But these schools, these freedom schools, taught things like, these are your rights. And I love that in one school, after the students learned about the Declaration of Independence, they drew up their, drew up their own Declaration of Independence from the state of Mississippi, saying, until we see some black policemen, until we see some, street, our, some of our streets and our neighborhoods paved, we are seceding from the state of Mississippi. So the Mississippi campaign, probably the closest the civil rights movement comes to a conventional ground war. Over a thousand activists crossed Mississippi that summer and it was a very tough fight. People were bombed, people were beaten, houses were blown up, churches were burned and several civil rights workers were murdered. And at the end of that summer, it wasn't clear quite what had been achieved. Uh, yes, segregation in Mississippi had been cracked. Voter registration had begun, but in very small numbers. The striking thing is though, they had lit the fuse. The Voting Rights Act gets passed a year later. Voting Rights Act of 1965, which by the way, the Supreme Court is now trying to take apart. The Voting Rights Act gets passed and black people finally are able to vote in Mississippi. Before Freedom Summer, 9% of uh, voting age blacks in Mississippi voted. By 1968, 57% voted. Well, what does that mean? It means that suddenly you started having black mayors. A few years later, black congressmen. Well, what does that mean? Well, one of those black congressmen was a guy named Benny Thompson, first elected to local office in 1969, eventually becomes chairman of the January 6th committee. So I see a direct line from the heroes of Mississippi, 1964, to the January 6th committee. People like Amzie Moore, Bob Moses, Fannie Lou Hamer, they were trying to bring democracy to Mississippi. And strikingly, the January 6th committee now, led by Benny Thompson of Mississippi, is trying to save American democracy. You know, something I'm curious about, I just want to ask, not random questions, but questions that just come to mind as, as one is thinking about this. You specifically cite Stacey Abrams as someone who obviously in Georgia, focused on the question of voting rights. And then when you're talking about um, Benny Thompson, obviously he himself is an elected official. I wonder whether in today's hyperpolarized climate, elected office and the introduction of direct politics is a plus or a minus. Because it seems that in Stacey Abrams's case, especially if she loses in the next few weeks, that would not have been a successful path. I'm curious how you think about the in the system versus outside the system dynamic. You're going to a core debate that has been there and continues to be there for good reasons. Uh, one of the early uh, arguments uh, within the civil rights movement was integration or voting rights. Amzie Moore, one of my heroes, uh, basically he's like a leader of the French resistance in Mississippi, but he's in Mississippi from after World War II through, through the 1960s. Amzie Moore famously said about integration, I don't wanna sit down and have lunch next to some cracker. I want voting rights because when you vote in this country, you have power. Votes lead to your streets being paved. Votes lead to being able to oversee the police budget and tell the police chief, no, you're not gonna get any money if your guys are beating up my people. Uh, so voting leads directly to political power. And that was actually a, a major focus and, and re unfortunately remains a major focus. I think one reason is that there's basically a white nationalist segment in this country. I would say 20% of white voters would rather not have a democracy if they can't control the country, if they can't define the country on their terms. Could you define white nationalism? 
Twenty percent seems a very high number. I would say it's people who um, believe that they should define the country, that they should define what the rules are, and that everybody else should listen to them and shut up is basically their approach. Uh, I think they are fortunately a minority. I think a bigger segment of the country, 50, 60, 70%, is quite comfortable with the notion of a multiracial democracy in which all Americans stand equally before the law. But you have this 20% that say no. And in fact, if they're saying, if democracy means we lose our ability to define America, to define what is an American, the ability to, uh, to control what books people read. I mean, in my own lifetime, John Lewis was not allowed to go to his town library. Well, that controlled what he could read. Today, there are other people who want to control what people can read, what you and I can read, what books uh, are permissible, um, what happens to your body. There's a lot of people who think that they have the right to control everybody else. And that's what I think fundamentally white nationalism about is about. I also think white nationalism is fundamentally anti-democratic, that ultimately it rests on the threat of violence. That if we don't get our way, we're going to be violent. And that's also deeply rooted in the American tradition. Slavery was a system based on violence. Segregation was simply a neuteration of that system. You know, the way you set that up, I think, gets to the core of, I'd say, difficulties facing activists who see themselves as the inheritors of the civil rights movement's legacy, because to your John Lewis example, it happened. So I don't want to say it was indefensible. They it was someone was able to prevent John Lewis from going to a library. So obviously it was defensible in, in the literal sense. But when it came to, I'd say, the court of public opinion, especially in let's say, more sympathetic liberal northern cities, the media, that is not a debate that in the year 1960 is winnable. But to the school example, you could bring up banning books, curriculum issues, CRT bans. Someone who supports those policies can, I think, in a way that a opponent of civil rights couldn't in the 60s, invoke Jeffersonian ideals. Um, Terry McAuliffe got in trouble for this during the governor's debate with um, with um, Governor Youngkin um, in 2021 when he said parents shouldn't be able to determine what books are in their kids' schools. And if you're just a normal person, you're like, oh, wait, that doesn't make that much sense. We have elected school boards. There are those dynamics. So can you speak to at least my thought that the difficulty today is there's a much more open playing field? Not that this is a game, obviously, but when it comes to, let's say, the hearts and minds aspect of these debates. Mm -hmm. I think the debate has not changed that much. What we have these days is a lot more coding. Um, now, recently, actually, some of that coding has been dropped and people aren't speaking in code. People are saying, no, I want you know, to, to reverse the progress of the last 60 years. I don't like it. You've had people surfacing the ideas of, um, for example, uh, making interracial marriage legal again. I mean, it strikes us as absurd, but there are people who talk about that. Uh, fortunately, as I said, this is a minority in America. The difference, I think, is until recent years, until the Trump era, people didn't feel comfortable saying it in public. And now for reasons I don't completely understand, people are much more comfortable expressing racist beliefs in public, especially on social media. I, you must see some of this stuff. I see this stuff and I am just stunned that, yeah, it might be you know some guy sitting in his parents' basement in his underwear, but he's still saying it and putting it out there. Uh, it, America is a long struggle and it's long been there. A fight 
over the difference between our aspirations and our realities. And there are a lot of people who don't want to look at the realities of America, the realities, for example, of police killings of young black men. It amazes me that even today, there are not good numbers on police killings. As I understand it, only about half of police killings of citizens are captured by the FBI database. The fact that no one is collecting those numbers tells me that we don't want to know the answer. And that tells me there are a lot of people in America comfortable with police killings who don't want that to change. So that stuff worries me. Uh, maybe they're not saying it in public, but the system is there. And when you prod the system, it can respond with great violence. Something I wonder, and I think the reason why the white nationalism 20% number makes folks, including myself, uncomfortable is what does one do with that? One of the big questions to your point in the book is this question of like reconciliation. And from my perspective, if we're looking at American society, we're going to disagree. We're going to have different perspectives on things. We're going to have libertarians and we're going to have socialists and they're going to be hyper-capitalists and they'll be billionaires. But at the end of the day, there is an acceptable bound that isn't quite perfectly defined, but we know it and we see it. It's like pornography. From my perspective, especially from a 20th century American history perspective, white nationalists are outside of those bounds. So when we talk about 20% being a white nationalist, you know, I guess basically, I don't know what to do with that. Do you, do you get what I'm saying? What, what, what do. do you think about that? I think um, there are moments when I feel despair about this country. Yet, the good news is, first, yes, they're there, but they're only 20%. Second, they tend to be old white men who are going to leave the planet Earth in a decade or two. They have been made to feel more comfortable by Fox News and the like, Donald Trump, but I don't think that the numbers have increased because of Fox News and Donald Trump. And they still have a hold on political power in some places, but that hold is declining. This is actually one of the things I like most about Stacey Abrams. Her point is, we're winning. They are losing, and they know it. And that's one reason you see things like the January 6th invasion of the Capitol. That was a sign of losers recognizing they've lost and an ex explosion of rage over the fact that they've lost. Look how quickly they turn on anybody who falls out of step with them, like Mike Pence. One day, oh yeah, he's Trump's vice president. The next day, hang Mike Pence. But, but the good news is I think the numbers are slowly dwindling. I'm surprised they're still there. Uh, it, they don't have a future, and they especially don't have a future in a working American democracy, which is why it is so important to register, to vote, and to otherwise maintain the democratic system. I wrote a piece about this for the Washington Post about a month ago about why I was no longer so worried about a civil war. Before January 6th, I was really worried. January 6th happens. I think, oh, my God, this is the beginning. And nothing happened. The things I thought would happen, um, state conventions that say we're not going to obey the federal government, things like that that happened before the Civil War, nullification juries that say we don't care what the evidence is, we're not going to convict people, um, assassinations of federal judges, um, bombings of courthouses. That's the type of thing I expected to happen, and none of it happened. Instead, all these people go before, go, are hauled into court, and every one of them that's been charged has been convicted. Likewise, all the people who claimed election fraud go into court after the presidential election. In court after court, more than 50 cases, the court says, get out of here. You have no evidence. Your allegations of fraud are baseless. So the second bit of optimism I have is that the system seems to be working. That people who tried to interfere with American democracy in January 6th are going to jail. Uh, people who allege fraud found themselves thrown out of court. Uh, 
Eventually, we saw another part of the, of the federal government, the legislative branch, kind of wake up and respond in the form of the January 6th committee, which is a real truth-telling committee. What happened, who did what, when? Establishing the historical record that cannot be denied. So I think the American system rather sluggishly is responding to this challenge and finding ways uh, to deal with this basic cancer on the American democracy, a cancer in the form of Trump, but also in the, the cancer in this form of this white nationalist minority. You know, I, I'm glad you brought up the topic of what I've seen on social media and something that I've seen that I'm very interested in. And I think this falls into the the military framing you're describing is you talk about that 20%. I've noticed that a rhetorical tactic that, and it, and the people who are doing this are a mix of people who I think actually believe this and also a faction that are being cynical, a tactic that they have transitioned to using, or actually this is a, a strategy in this case is embracing the idea behind there being this 20% and then saying, by the way, white or conservative Americans, or even men, regardless of gen, regardless of race, because there's a weird, slight depolarization of racist, racial issues here. They think that you're all white nationalists. So what, what they're so they're, so they think that you're all white nationalists. And what they're going to do is they're starting with, oh, you're a white nationalist if you if you support segregation. Oh, you're a white nationalist if you don't like Ibram Kendi. Oh, and that's the way they'll tell the story. How do you suggest that activists to the left who consider themselves in the civil rights camp, how do you suggest they oppose, fight back against their opponents in that 20% while also not speaking in a way that plays into the strategy that many folks in the middle there use to activate more persons to their side. It seems like the person who I'm really talking about being up for grabs is a, let's say, 40-something white woman with kids in elementary school who says, oh, you know what, like, what actually is going on in my classroom? Oh, wait, like, are you really saying I'm racist for asking that question? Mm -hmm. Um. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce his last name. Omar Wazow, W-A-S-O-W, uh, a political scientist, wrote a very good paper on this. Uh, he was studying the 1960s, but I think his conclusions apply to today. He said the thing that really scares that sort of fence sitter, the person um, who could go either way, is violence. Uh, violent talk threat of violence. And this is actually another thing, I think great misstep by the Trump camp, the threat that if we don't get our way, we'll use violence. What that I think middle group wants is decency um, and peace. They're afraid of violence, they're terrified especially of black violence and that's the card that Fox News plays incessantly. I mean, if you watch Fox News, you think crime in America is going up and that um, the cities are burning and that young black men are terrifying the rest of the country. None of that is true, yet it is the daily drumbeat on Fox News. I thought crime rates were going up. No. Um, murder has gone up in a few places, but generally this country has less criminal activity, uh, markedly less than it did 20 years ago. Um, you, you have sporadic violence, but generally, you mean the number the numbers are good. Mm -hmm. So I think the the way to address that person, this is the brilliance of, of the nonviolent approach, is to uh, say we want to address things in nonviolent ways. Second is to condemn violence both on the left and the right, to say that both are equally outside the acceptable behaviors in American society. And third, to say, let's make the system work. The American system, the Bill of Rights, lays out some basic rules of behavior, free speech, peaceable assembly. So when I see politicians criticize demonstrations without distinction about whether they're violent or not, they are making a basic mistake. 
everybody in this country has the right to go out and protest, but people do not have the right to go out and violently protest. That is a losing proposition. The related thing is to condemn bad behavior on your own side. It really strikes me how reluctant the American right is. People are considered conservatives, yet they're very reluctant to criticize reactionaries, to criticize openly racial, um, ra openly racist behavior. Trump has normalized openly, openly racist behaviors. Um, and except for Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney, no Republicans are saying, time out, that's not acceptable. Even people like Mitt Romney, and my wife mentioned this the other day, where's Mitt Romney? He always presented himself as a man of decency. You don't see him saying, this needs to stop, this sort of talk, um, making fun of, of, of people um, in, in racial terms and stuff. Uh, Can I ask you a practical question? Sure. Because um, we're, we're speaking, because once again, I, I think the reason why I like the frame is, you know, we're comparing this to to a war. So I think we can be practical. What use would, so if you're Mitt Romney, um, and I think I have a decent view into how a lot of folks on the right think about this, what use would it be condemning folks who are directionally on your side? And I think the same, I think the same dynamic could play out um, on the Black Lives Matter side. Like, for example, mm -hmm. It's not quite clear to me, to make sure I'm not trying to be a hypocrite here, it's not quite clear to me if some random BLM leader in Missouri should condemn violent statements by a BLM leader in New York City. It's not quite clear that that would answer your critics' calls. It would validate concerns that others are raising, oftentimes in bad faith. Like, what is the use of condemnation? In this specific context, on either side, because I, I don't, because I, because I just don't, I don't see the actual. Let's put aside morals for a second. People are trying to win. Sister soldier moments aren't helpful in this context. No, but sister soldier was not somebody policing their own side. That was Bill Clinton scoring points for a political end. Uh, I'm talking about policing your own side. Um, so. Main, uh, saying there are bright lines here that should not be crossed. Uh, saying that certain types of behavior, frankly, are un-American. The use of this is first, it's the right thing to do. And I believe you can't go wrong by doing the right thing. You never know what the long-term consequences will be, but it's generally the, the smart way to go is the right thing. The second thing is the civil rights movement gives us an example of really studied careful monitoring of their own behaviors. That's part of the great discipline. Whenever you talk to a civil rights veteran, the word discipline comes up. Mm. Discipline means many things. It means message discipline. People focusing on the long-term goal, keeping your eyes on the prize. Discipline is also tactical. It's when you go out and march, one thing you wanna do is maintain nonviolence because violence will make you look bad. It will also give the opponent and the opposition to come in and crack heads. So in civil rights marches, they always had trained people. They had people marching in groups. Selma, for example, people marched by neighborhood, which did a couple of things. You knew the people on your left and right. That increases cohesion. It makes people feel better. It gives them courage. You're among familiar faces. The third thing, and this is important, is when people know each other, it's much harder to infiltrate with spies and provocateurs. One thing the opponent wanted to do against the civil rights movement was to make it look bad. How did you make it look bad? You had people come out of a march and start hitting people, breaking windows, looting liquor stores. So if you have- Would these have been white people? Like who would who, who would who'd be doing that in this case? Oh, you could, um, this, we know this from the records. Um, the police would take somebody in jail and say, you can, you know, you can do it next year in jail or you can go to the march tomorrow and um, do X, Y, Z for us. Fascinating. I had no you idea. Could, you could spy on them. You could provoke violence. You could slug a cop. Um, these are all things that you had to monitor against. One thing that the civil rights movement was very good at because the Southern civil rights movement had the church, it was based in the church 
they had secure communications and they kind of knew who they were. So you'd recognize the stranger and ask kind of, well, what are you doing here? One of the rules in the Montgomery bus boycott, when a strange voice called up and said, what are y'all doing tomorrow? The answer was, call your church and ask. This was actually a great problem for the Black Panthers. They were not based in churches. They were not as good at counterintelligence. They were riddled with FBI spies and also provocateurs. So we know from the historical record that the people who ran security in New York City, Detroit, um, and several other major cities, the people who ran security within the Black Panthers were actually FBI informants. Uh, it was very difficult for them to get anything done when you have those spies inside the room and you don't know who they are, what they're doing. You don't know when somebody advocates a course of action, is he doing it because his FBI handler has told them that. The civil rights movement, classical civil rights movement, was actually very good about dealing with that sort of infiltration and provocation. A counterexample, April 68, the marches in Memphis, they were not as well monitored. They did not have good parade marshals. The marches were bigger than expected and the parade marshals were overwhelmed and violence broke out. I suspect partly because at least because of police provocateurs. You know, what you're describing here gets at a frustration I've had since I became politically active. Um, I remember when Occupy Wall Street started, it was very explicitly stated that the advantage of Occupy Wall Street was it was leaderless. Um, there wasn't a top-down figure making statements. And as you're articulating, both I think your critiques of Mitt Romney, the laudable aspects of the civil rights movement, it seemed like an underlying reality here is that you had institutions, in the case, the church, and in the case of, let's say, Republicans in the 60s, you would have a Republican party that had much more institutional legitimacy in of itself. People would care what a leader of an institution would say in a way they wouldn't today. How do you suggest that civil rights movements or just anyone trying to police their side navigates a space where anyone in authority has no longer has the ability of compliance that I think you'd assume they would. And then secondly, oftentimes these movements are not rooted within a church. The the worst of the worst on January 6th, they're in a decentralized Facebook group. They are not coming from the local Republican club, which can be identified and defunded by the national GOP. How should we think about that shift between these two eras? Um, If you want a sustainable movement, you need long-term goals and organization. Now, you mentioned authority a couple of times. In the civil rights movement, I would say the authority was earned. Mm. Nobody appointed people. You are now, you know, you know, Lieutenant General King in charge of Georgia. You earn this uh, through what you did, what you said, and how you worked with people. One of the most striking things to me about the civil rights movement, and it amazed me when I went deep into the archives and read the transcripts and so on, is how much time they spent strategizing, talking about strategy, examining their differences. The essence of strategy is looking at your differences, not papering them over, but figuring out why those differences exist and what to do about it. Maybe the other fellow has a sharply different point of view for a good reason. Let's explore it. As Casey Hayden said, uh, a woman in SNCC, when you're asking people to put their lives in the line, you need to hear them out. And so SNCC especially kept wonderful records of their meetings, which sometimes went on literally for days as they argued through. Uh, even in the crucial moment of the Freedom Rides, James Bevel and Diane Nash in Nashville are preparing to send reinforcements to restart the Freedom Rides after the KKK has smashed the riders in Birmingham, Alabama. They spend a full day and a half discussing strategy and approaches because they said, if you're gonna put people on buses and they're gonna die and get burned up, we all need to talk about what we're doing, how we're doing it. Diane Nash famously said, the beginning of strategy is figuring out who you are. The first question is, who are we and what are we trying to do? 
That's important because how you answer it gives you your strategy. And from that flows tactics. Diane Nash's answer was, we are people who are no longer willing to tolerate segregation. Now she said, white people may kill us for this, but that's their problem. That's not our problem. We're different. That strategic question also is an act of self-liberation. You don't allow other people to define you. I mentioned this because out of this grows moral authority. The civil rights movement didn't have any legal control over people. People could leave anytime they wanted. So the control was moral authority. The fact that Fred Shuttlesworth or James Bevel or Diane Nash had been there, had put their lives on the line, had thought through all these questions and had the moral authority. That um, is what really makes an organization work. It's not any legal hierarchy. It's the fact that these people have been there. Bob Moses in Mississippi running Freedom Summer. Small little guy, barely spoke, very quiet. He had such enormous moral authority that people decades older would listen to him and follow his orders because they knew he had been there. He had put his life on the line. He had thought through these questions. You know, it's interesting. I'm wondering before we pivot to the broader U.S. military, do you think that social media and the skills and the features that it amplifies or encourages are aligned with the skills that you want in movement leaders? Because I don't think they are, given what you're describing. I think you're right. Uh, Every new information environment brings new problems. And I think a major problem in the social media environment, uh, frankly, is the problem of provocateurs and infiltrators, not just inside America, but from outside. Um, Vladimir Putin, as I understand it, has put a major effort into using American social media to deepen divisions in the United States. Uh, And frankly, we've seen this before. J. Edgar Hoover did the same thing to the civil rights movement. He looked upon Martin Luther King as public enemy number one. So here you have a major U.S organization, a domestic intelligence agency, declaring war on King and the civil rights movement, who were operating a perfectly legal political operation to change the United States that Hoover happened to disagree with. So there are precedents for this. I think we can learn from some of the precedents, but yeah, it's a different environment. It's especially a different information environment. Um, It takes, I would say, James Lawson would say, long, hard consideration, long discussion, long study before you start formulating answers. Then you go out on the streets and you try out those answers. And if those answers don't work, you try other answers. You learn from your mistakes. But again, to learn from your mistakes, you need a sustained organization that meets and discusses. You raise the question, does it have to have a recognizable leadership hierarchy? But I'm not sure it does. One of the problems in the civil rights movement was uh, in Mississippi, the white supremacist system knew this all too well. If you kill their leaders, you can stop the movement. So an organization that is more dispersed is more survivable. Um, Quick interruption though. No one, for good or for ill, BLM, Occupy Wall Street, those folks aren't being assassinated right now, though. So it seems like the threat environment is different. Uh, One of the measures of the threat environment is when you actually begin to get genuine social change, the threat against you will go up. Okay, I didn't think about it that way. That's helpful. So um, in Mississippi in 1963, um, movement intelligence gathering discovered that credibly the response to any big major civil rights movement into Mississippi would be the systematic assassination of leaders. Um, Amzie Moore, Bob Moses, Fannie Lou Hamer were all going to be targeted. And in fact, Medgar Evers was targeted and murdered. An incredibly courageous man um, shot in, in front of his house 
through the heart with a hunting rifle. Um, they will start coming after leaders if you are effective. So for the last section, I want to do a complete hard pivot to um, a book from 2012, The General's American Military Command from World War II to Today. I'm interested in this because is you know we're, we're at the 10-year anniversary, and it seems like the valence of the argument you're making, criticism of American generalship, the procedures by which they're promoted, the ways in which they're praised, the expectations, civilian leadership, the valence of this argument has completely switched to the point where it's my most right-wing or conservative friends who are most hostile towards generalship. And I think in many ways, and this is why I get very frustrated with this conversation, I think many folks have adopted arguments that you made, I think, in deep bad faith. Um, mm -hmm. So you're now seeing Blake Masters of Arizona say things like, look at this promotion process, look mm -hmm. at these generals. And the critique isn't about you know their performance in the Iraq war, it's about their position on socio-cultural political issues mm -hmm. that should be outside of the military. Yeah. And that in many ways are actually under the control of civilian leaders, not themselves. So can you just like reiterate the concerns you had in 2012 and just talk about how you've seen this discussion evolve over the past 10 years? Because it's been really fascinating. Yeah, the argument I made in, in 2012 in the, in the generals was that American generals used to take risk. They existed in a system in World War II, for example, that forced them to take risk. And if they didn't succeed, uh, they were removed. So in World War II, a general had basically 90 days in combat to succeed, to get killed, or get replaced. And success was measurable. Was he able to carry out orders? Was he able to win? And my conclusion on that book is we lost that tradition of accountability for generalship um, in the subsequent wars. In World War II, a general being relieved was not a sign of systemic failure. It was a sign the system was working. Sometimes these generals went off, came back, got another shot later on. Uh, you're right though, that I occasionally see the arguments in my book taken up as a club to hit the US military over the head. The interesting thing is the criticism of the generals is not used to discuss, as you say, you know, the conduct of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. It's rather the club, the army and the Navy and so on for um, social changes for being quote unquote, a woke military. My response to that is two things. First, number one, uh, there is no evidence that a woke military is an ineffective military. In fact, there is ample evidence that a woke military, and what's so good about being asleep, by the way, a woke military is a more effective military. Secondly, in America, the military must be connected to the people. It's part of our system. Um, integration of the military, beginning with President Truman, made the US military a better organization. You have, whenever you open the door to more people of more of different talents and backgrounds that come from all over America, the better your military will be. And by the way, um, the Russian military is not woke and they're getting their asses kicked right now by a woke military in Ukraine. Smaller, tougher, women in the front lines, women fighting. Um, Whereas the macho bullshit Russian army uh, looked like a bunch of fools running from the battlefield. Um, the second thing is generalship does need to be discussed in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, you can't just blame it on policy and on civilians. Our conduct of the war there uh, was, of the wars there, was bad in many ways from the get-go. I wrote a whole book about that fiasco. The, Army did start doing better in Iraq. I wrote about that in the gamble. But basically we have a military that is risk averse. Go in there, keep your head down. Um, don't do anything real prominent and go home after a year. That is a recipe for stalemate. And that's why you wind up sitting in Afghanistan for 20 years, not doing a whole lot and then eventually leaving. 
We need risk takers. And I'm reminded of something that General McChrystal said when he was commanding in Afghanistan. He was talking to a company commander out in the field. And the company commander, of course, knew you're there for a one-year rotation. And after the company commander briefed him on his operations, he said, uh, well, Captain, uh, if you were here for the duration until we win, would you be operating any differently? And the captain said, oh, yes, sir, totally. Well, there you go. The captain's not going to take any risk. His job is to get through the year and get home without getting too many of his people killed. I think what's so interesting about that last anecdote with the captain, I guess what I kind of wonder, though, and this is where the blame it on civilians side, I think, is is at its most reasonable. At a core level, the Afghan war became political in terms of its objectives. It was not militarily defeat the Taliban in the field because, well, that, that, was, that was an aspect of it. But that was consistently achieved. Um, that's the Vietnam aspect where you never lose a fight. But no matter what that captain had done, if they'd stayed, let's say, the full 20 years of the war up until they were a lieutenant colonel or general themselves, that wouldn't have changed the underlying political issue facing them as a leader in the field. So how would you understand like that? Let me put it this way. It doesn't seem that Afghan nationhood and the inability to form a nation state that could sustain itself um, with or without a U.S. presence, it's hard to see that coming down to specific decisions by captains in the field, for good or for ill. I disagree with that. Um, If you operate differently in the field and you are operating differently in the field with the approval and understanding of the people above you, you begin to change things. Mm. Uh, If the local Afghan, you know, village chief knows you're going to be gone next year and some other guy's going to be here. uh, He learns basically how to hold you off and not make any changes. Um, He learns that you're here for the short short term. He's there for the long term. He's there in Afghanistan for the rest of his life. Reminds me of a story, I can't remember whether I put it in the the gamble or not, of a local Iraqi ally uh, in Iraq said uh, to me one day, Tom, let me tell you how I operate here. He said, every year, the local American general comes in and says, hey, Ahmed, Muhammad, whatever your name is, I'm General So-and-so, I'm the new sheriff in town, this is how it's going to be. He said, I sit down for a couple of months, we drink tea and we talk, and he tells me what he wants to happen. And then we spend a couple of months talking about how we're going to make that happen. And then we take some quiet steps and we drag our feet. And then after about seven months, his eyes lift to the horizon. He's starting on planning and going home. And when I try to bring up things, he said, well, yeah, yeah, we'll do that. You know, we'll change the police. We'll do that. And he said, after about 10 months, I can't get his attention anymore. And then 12 months, he's gone. This is an ally talking. And then he says, a month later, another general walks in, sits down, says, hey, Ahmed, Muhammad, whatever your name is, new sheriff in town, this is how it's going to be. And he said, what I learned to do was to basically drag my feet and wait them out. That's an ally. Well, if the allies are operating that way, the enemies have already won. We never took Afghanistan or Iraq seriously. We never understood, for example, the Afghans having a nation state. The Taliban now own it. They know how to operate that country. They know how to run it, even though they're a rural minority that basically are the hillbillies of Afghanistan. I used to live in Afghanistan, by the way, um, as a kid, as a teenager. Um, you know, the, the, the the Taliban come out of Oruzgan province, the Arkansas of, of Afghanistan. Uh, there are ways to do it. Afghans, in many ways, have a had a better democratic system than America. Their lawyer-juror system, based on consensus in, among groups, finding larger consensus between those groups, resembles ancient Greek democracy more than our system does. We have things in our system. We'd say, oh, the Afghans are corrupt. They'd look at our system and say, just because it's legal doesn't mean it's corrupt. You people have sold your democracy for dollars. The dollar now outweighs the vote in America. Rich people run your elections. 
rich people determine ultimately who gets on the Supreme Court because they spend 20 years stuffing the Supreme Court with right-wing nuts. So we never really took those places seriously enough to work with those countries as they are. Um, I don't think either the military or civilian leadership really ever understood what they were getting into there. So the last question I'll wrap with, I'm trying my best to mention as many of your books as possible. Um, I've really enjoyed making the core, which you wrote during the 1990s. And it seems to me one of the themes there is the the US military and the Marine Corps specifically during this moment of transition away from the Cold War, the discussion of, you know, the three block war, you know, you're 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 intervening in Haiti. That looks different than the way the Marine Corps conceptualized itself. You're making these shifts right now with the war in Ukraine, talk of a possible conflict with China over Taiwan, the Marine Corps pivoting itself again. It got rid of its tanks. Um, it's now thinking of itself as much more of a Pacific centric force. Can you just give your closing thoughts on how you see the military during this transition point, which seems just as momentous as that 1990s one? I think that's an extremely good summary uh, of where we're at these days. Uh, my great concern coming out of the last 20 years is American hubris. We constantly tell ourselves we have the best military in the world. Well, right now, for my money, the best military in the world is probably Ukraine. They are punching way above their weight. They are operating in a new environment with drones, with extremely fast passage of data uh, in a kind of multi-layered network that includes even frontline civilians. Uh, so frontline civilians, when they see a Russian tank have the ability to send in its GPS coordinates. Uh, we're seeing a whole new brand of warfare out there. Uh, in my dream world, when the Ukraine war is over, we would hire a thousand or so Ukrainian fighters to come over and train the American military. Um, there is just a lot going on out there that we're going to have to change and operate differently. Now, I'm not saying high-tech weaponry is not the thing. One of the things we've seen is just how valuable this high Mars long-range artillery system is. It can hit targets many miles away, very precisely. Uh, so we need to study, we need to learn from foreign militaries. And by the way, a woke military is probably a better learning organization than a military that's full of macho bullshit and thinks it's better than everybody else. Um, that's the question in my mind is, will we learn? By the way, the corollary to that is the single most important thing you could be doing nowadays with the US military is multinational exercises. Working with other militaries, not only teaching them, but learning from them and learning how to operate together. Interestingly to me, the two most important parts of the US military right now, because of the war in Ukraine, it's not special operators, it's not big tank out, you know, units. The most important are the logisticians who are running the air flights that are getting this gear to the Ukrainians and the National Guard units who trained Ukrainians over the last 10 years in the basic fundamentals of warfare. You know, joint and combined operations in the field, everything from you know, how does a rifle squad best operate to how do you work with drone aircraft? How do you get intelligence from aircraft to people in the field who can use it? Uh, so there's a lot going on there. There's a lot to learn, but the US military needs to come at, at it with great humility and learn, first of all, from what's going on out there. Well said, Tom Ricks, thank you for joining me on The Realignment. You're welcome. This has been a really enjoyable conversation and I'm happy to join you anytime. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you learned something, 
like the Serve Mission or want to access our subscriber-exclusive Q&A, bonus episodes, and more, go to realignment.supercast.com and subscribe to our $5 a month, $50 a year, or $500 for lifetime membership rates. See you all next time.